Welcome to Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we teach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But you might, if you're new, you might ask, why? Why the Bible? Why not the Koran? Why not all the other holy books? Why not the teachings of Confucius or Mahatma Gandhi or somebody like that? A lot of us, when we're asked that question, will say, well, I believe the Bible because that's the way I was raised. And that's not really a very good answer because there's one billion Muslims who are raised another way and that's the way they were raised. So that's not really a good answer. Uh, some folks would say, well, you know, I tried it, and it changed my life. Well, there was a, I'll tell you a story about a young man. He was born in the Midwest to a large family. His mother had mental problems. His dad was murdered when he was quite young. So he was sent to Boston to live with an older sister. <clears throat> and this man uh, fell in with some unsavory characters in the Boston area, and he became quite unsavory and got sent to prison. While he was in prison, he was approached by a group of men who told him he needed to bow his knee and accept the Messiah and that it would change his life. And he refused until one night he met this Messiah in his cell and it dramatically changed his life. He got out of prison early because he had such good behavior and once he got out, he founded over a hundred places of worship. There are streets and cities and, and, and a lot of the cities around America named after this young man. What was his name? Malcolm X. He later found out that his supposed Messiah, Elijah Muhammad, was a fraud. And so he converted to another branch of Islam and the one Elijah Muhammad had represented had him killed. So, see, things can change your life that's not a good answer because Malcolm X was totally wrong. So why do we study the Bible verse by verse? I think the best answer was given by a guy I saw on YouTube, a black gentleman named Vody Balkum. <clears throat> and this is the answer he gave for why we study the Bible. It's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during their lifetime of other eyewitnesses recording supernatural events that took place and fulfillment of specific prophecies and <clears throat> claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Now that's a lot. What does that mean? <laughs> well, the Bible is 66 books written by 40 different men inspired by the Word of God over a period of 2,500 years. And it fits together just like a puzzle, just like a jigsaw. It complements itself. Unlike the Book of Mormon, which is full of errors and falsities, it, the, 20 years ago, the archaeologists, the Mormon archaeologists claimed that they would discover the stuff to really verify the Book of Mormon in South America and it still hasn't happened. Unlike the Bible, which is verified archaeologically all the time. Several years ago, 
the one outstanding claim was that, you know, the Bible talks about the Hittites, and we've never found the Hittites. Well, guess what? About 10 years ago, archaeologists found the home of the, of the Hittites. So the Bible is very reliable. That's why we study it verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We've been studying 1 Thessalonians, and now we're moving on to 2 Thessalonians. Just to refresh your memory, if you want to look in the book of Acts, you'll find in Acts chapter 16, verse 9, Paul had a vision in the night of a man asking him to come to Macedonia, which is now the country of Greece, and to preach to them. So Paul headed that way, stopping first in Philippi to preach, where in that city a certain woman who practiced divination, which is a form of fortune-telling, she got on Paul's nerves because she followed him around and saying, Behold the men of God, and these men are from God. And she kept interrupting him, and, and it kind of got on Paul's nerves. So he cast the demon out of her, causing her to lose her power of divination and infuriating her masters over the loss of income. <clears throat> so Paul and Silas were beaten brutally and cast in jail. God miraculously gets them out of jail and saves the jailer and his whole family. And then Paul journeys on to Thessalonica where he plants a church in as few as three weeks. There were all kinds of religions in that day, false religions, all kinds of pagan worship. They practiced all kinds of weird stuff. There were temple prostitutes and all kinds of sexual immorality involved in these fake religions. There was also a sizable number of Jews in Thessalonica. And they became angry because Paul was preaching Jesus. And so because that they in... They, in, um, they, they got the government leaders to turn against them and Paul, Timothy, and Silas were forced to leave the area and Paul was a, unable to return to Thessalonica so he sent Timothy back and he got a report from Timothy and in answer to that report he wrote 1 Thessalonians the church was growing, it was abounding in love there was a lot of good things going on and, and, but there were a couple of problems there were three problems Number one problem was um, that uh, people thought the rapture or the com second coming of Jesus was so imminent that some people refused to work and were sponging off of the other Christians because they just knew Jesus was coming, so why should I go to work? Uh, secondly, there was a problem with sexual immorality. Uh, immorality. Some folks, these false religions had, had lured them in, and they were trying to carry that into Christianity, and Paul had to deal with that. And then the third thing problem that was in in Thessalonica was that some of the saints had died and they knew in the teaching from from Paul's teaching that the rapture was coming Jesus was coming for his church and then the great tribulation but they were being persecuted for their faith so they thought the tribulation had started and they had missed the rapture so Paul had to deal with that problem so he wrote the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Shortly after that, he gets message back and decides to write another letter to the Thessalonians. These two letters are probably two of the oldest letters Paul wrote. The only one older was Galatians. So Paul wrote the book uh, or the letter of 2 Thessalonians probably six months after he wrote the first one. In both of these letters, we see Paul's love for the new church. He loved these people like they were his children. 
He was concerned for their suffering in this time of persecution. And we see him giving them instructions in godliness like a father would his children. He comes alongside them. He's not harsh. He, he concentrates on the good things that they're doing. And because we believe the Bible is the infallible word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, you know, it, it is also a picture of God's heart. Paul's picture, heart is also a picture of God's heart toward you and me. He looks, be, as the old song says, he looks beyond our fault and sees our need. So Paul opens his second letter in the same exact way as he did the first. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Silvanus is just the, another form of the name Silas, Paul and Silas. <clears throat> Notice he says, grace to you. We were all the enemies of God. But the good news is that now we receive grace through Jesus Christ. We're no longer the enemies of God. Peace, and we have peace with God. We're no longer his enemy. Notice the phraseology, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. By listing the Father and the Son like this, Paul is stating their equality. You see, some religions and some cults deny that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. He's what we call the God-man. They might see him as a good prophet or a good person, but not God in the flesh or God incarnate. This is where Christianity differs from every other religion. 2 Corinthians 5.19 puts it this way, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them, and had committed to us the word of reconciliation. Let's look at verse 3. But we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because of your, your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience, your faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Here again, Paul sounding like a proud father, isn't he? He's bragging. He says, We're th I'm so thankful for your faith. I'm thankful that you're continuing to grow in the faith. You're not going backwards. You're going forward and, and that you're continuing to love one another. As parents, what do we want? We want to see that our kids get along and love each other, don't we? And Paul's saying the same thing. And likewise, God is saying that to us, that he, he wants us to love one another. Notice who he's thankful to. He says he gives thanks to who? God, not the elders, not the pastor, not any other form of teachers or schooling or anything else, but to God. God gives the increase. Now again in verse 4, he says, like a proud parent, he boasts about them to the other churches. He's telling the other churches, hey, look at these guys, how they love one another. And they're getting persecuted, and they love one another. He mentions their patience and tribulations, that they're hanging in there, that they're not giving up. They're still holding on to the instruction he gave them for those three weeks that he was there. And they're not quitting in spite of the persecution. You see, Paul isn't looking for perfection. He's looking for progress. That's what we want for our kids, isn't it? As parents, we want progress. We, we know that life is going to throw some hard knocks at them. 
and we kind of we're fearful of that if if you're honest you're feel fearful of what your kids and your grandkids might face and you know life's going to do some tough things to them and what you pray is that you've implanted something in their heart that they'll hold on that they'll not give up drop out quit or hang you know but you want them to keep fighting we hope to have put that in them and this is the same feeling that Paul has toward the church he's thrilled that his spiritual children are holding on in their circumstances. Persecution was discussed in the first book of Thessalonians, and it's discussed here again. It obviously was still going on when the report came back from the first letter. So Paul continues here with that persecution in mind. Let's look at verse 5. Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay the tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul says a lot here. First he says that the persecution is the evidence of God's righteous judgment. What? Persecution is the evidence of God's righteous judgment. What does that mean? You see, God has changed these believers. They're no longer a part of this world. They're not welcome here. Jesus said not to marvel if the world hates you. It hated him first. 1 John 2.15 says it this way. Love not the world, nor the things in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Persecution is the evidence that they are no longer part of this world. God has transformed them. That persecution that's coming on them is the proof that God has done a mighty work in their life. He has transformed them spirit, mind, and body. He, they're thinking different, they're walking different, they're acting different. Remember when we studied in 1 Thessalonians, we said true uh, repentance of the gospel is uh, a true life, Christian life is based on sound doctrine, a personal relationship with Jesus, and a changed life. Those are the three elements of a real Christian. Personal relationship with Jesus, sound doctrine, and a changed life. And this, Paul says, persecution is evidence that that has happened in their life. Second, I think the insinuation is here is that if you're going to suffer, suffer for something worthy. They're suffering for the kingdom of God. Now, we know there's a lot of people suffering in the world today. But sadly, most of the suffering in the world today is from people's dumb choices bad choices. They've bought into the world's lies and they have reaped the suffering. We see it everywhere. We see it uh, unwanted pregnancies, venereal disease, drug addiction, alcoholism, depression, indebtedness, and many health issues are just the result of bad choices. But the Thessalonians are suffering for the kingdom of God. They're suffering for something worthy. If our kids are suffering, what do we usually pray? Oh, God, stop the suffering. Stop the problem, right? That's what we say, right? Nowhere, nowhere in Paul's letters does he pray for the persecution to stop, 
for these believers. Why? Paul says that suffering in itself is worthy. It's something worthy. Why is that? We sang in those songs this morning, praying for brokenness, didn't we? Why? Well, number one, suffering builds character. It grinds away stuff in our life. You know, we sing that song just as I am when we, when we come to Jesus, when we ask him into our life. We don't have to clean up our act. We don't have to change and get good to get to God. We come in our filth and our mess and our all brokenness, and then he begins to work. And sometimes he uses suffering to fix us. He accepts us like we are. We're accepted as we come to him. But suffering builds character. It grinds away stuff in our life that's unlike God. God is the great blacksmith, and he uses heat to forge stronger and better character in us. Number two, suffering breaks our love affair with the world. You see, many of us are in a covenant relationship with Jesus. We've asked him into our life, but we're having an affair with the world at the same time. And suffering wakes us up to that fact. Suffering makes us examine our lives and reevaluate. We see that life is really short. We see that there's a lot of pain and anger and, and hurt and, and sickness and disease. And that eternity is a long time. We reevaluate. Maybe this world isn't where we want to put all our stock. Maybe this world isn't where we want to invest all of our life. Maybe this world isn't what we want to count on or stand on. Maybe we want to look to eternity. Maybe we want to look to another kingdom. And thirdly, suffering makes us look to Christ. Paul has seen his children suffer. And like us, when he sees that, he's broken hearted. But he's saying all throughout these two letters, he's given them something to hold on to. He says, hang on. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. It's like that old saying, it's Friday night, but Sunday's coming. Well, it's bad now. This, If you're a Christian, this is the worst it's going to ever be for you. He says that in a lot, a lot in these letters. He talks about the coming of Jesus. That's our hope, our great hope. He's saying, just as Paul is saying that to his children in Thessalonica, God's saying that to you today. We've seen some crazy things in the last couple of years. And i got bad news for you. It's going to continue to get worse. The Bible says that in the last days there's going to be a great deception poured out on this planet. And people are going to believe a lie and be lost. How can you prevent that? A personal relationship with Jesus. Put his word in your heart. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Don't give up hope. Your Heavenly Father is saying that to you today. Hold fast. Don't give up. I'm coming back. It's not going to be this way forever. Relief, justice, and rest are on the way. Jesus is coming. But when is this relief relief coming? Verse 7 says, It's coming when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power 
when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony was believed among you in that day. Wherefore, we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. At this point, the letter takes a dark turn. It's why we preach through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We don't just go nitpick and pick out the little, the good, loving, nice parts, but there are hard truths in the Bible that we need to understand. And it takes a dark turn here, and we're forced to talk about those when we preach straight through the Bible. You probably will never hear a, a TV preacher touch these verses. You probably will never hear them. Notice when our relief is coming, it's not going to be good for the unbeliever. He says he's taking flaming vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. Now that's not Christians. You don't have to fear and be afraid of that. That's not something you should be worried about. You're not going to be here. That's another confusion and a misconception. People say, well, the Bible says there's signs of Jesus coming, but it says no man knows the day or the hour. That's because they confuse the verses about the rapture and the second coming at the end of the tribulation. You see, Jesus is coming back for the church at the end of the church age, but he's not setting foot on the earth. He's going to come. The Bible says that the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive will be transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and we're going to be caught away to heaven to be with him, and then all hell is coming on this earth. The Bible says it will be a time of, of great tribulation like the earth has never known. And you know, the earth has known some pretty bad stuff, hasn't it? World War II, World War One, But it's going to be worse, the Bible says. So a little, little bit of confusion about the coming. His first coming is for the church, his bride. The second coming is at the end of the seven-year tribulation when he will judge the, the, the unbelievers in the world. So it's going to be a bad time for the unbeliever when he returns. The tribulation is the first part of a great suffering they're going to experience on the earth like never before. But also the second part says there's going to be an everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. That's the second part. Now how can that be possible? How can they be separated from the God who is omnipotent and omnipresent? How do you escape the presence and the glory of this God who's everywhere? Well, I think it might be like this. Today we live in a marvelous and a horrible world at the same time. There's the marvelous beauty of God's creation, the fauna, the trees, the mountains, the seas, newborn babies, love between a man and a woman, great acts of love, devotion, and sacrifice. But at the same time in our world, there is evil beyond belief. Serial rapists, killers, pedophiles, war, crime, abuse, sickness, crippling disease, birth defects, injustice. See, all these good things that we experience, our health, our family, our home, all the, every good thing we experience is a result 
of the presence, the manifest presence of God on this planet. Take him out, and what you have left is separation from God. Remember James 1.17 said, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, no shadow of turning. You see, these unbelievers that we're talking about, these aren't Christians. They've rejected God. They've rejected his sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and so he's given them what they want. He's given them what they want. They don't want anything to do with God. They've thumbed their nose at him, and so they're going to have an eternity without the presence or the glory of God. Now, there's a couple misconceptions about this. That phrase, everlasting destruction, some say the word destruction means that the unbeliever will cease to exist. Jehovah's Witnesses teach this. We didn't exist before we were born, and then God created us, and we came to life, and at some point we'll cease to exist, or so their thinking goes. They think that when you die, you just return to the dust. But the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that we were created in the image of God and we are eternal beings. There is a spirit inside this body. This body is just the home, just the shelter, just the dwelling that's going to dwell somewhere for eternity. And that's why Jesus came, so that you could dwell with him for eternity. But there's also a place for those who reject that, who thumb their nose at God and refuse his mercy and his grace. And that's going to be... When they die, it's going to be a place called hell. And then once the, 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 the millennium kingdom is over with, they'll be cast, hell and them will be cast into the lake of fire. It's a place of eternal punishment. I know that's not a cheery message, but hopefully none of you are going there because you've accepted Jesus. So some say that, eternal, that everlasting destruction means they're going to be gone. Poof, you know. I'll talk about a little more about that in a minute. The other part is everlasting. Some say that it's just too harsh for a loving God to send people to hell. And it's, and it's just too harsh to spend eternity in the lake of fire when I only got to live 60, 70, 80 years and party. I mean, ain't, ain't that kind of out of balance? The reason we say this is because we have a poor understanding of the holiness of God. We always ask that question, why would a loving God send people to hell? But you know the question we never ask? Why would a holy God take you and me to heaven? Why would a holy God take you and me to heaven? You know, it wouldn't be just for a person to thumb their nose at God all their life, rebel, abuse those around them, do whatever they wanted to, and then it die at their death, just be annihilated. That wouldn't be justice and just cease to exist. Think about that. Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Pol Pot, Jeffrey Dahmer, all these people, for them, if they would just die and cease to exist, would that be justice to the people that they abused and murdered and, and all the killings they did? You see, if that happened, God wouldn't be a holy God. He wouldn't be a just God. But because we don't comprehend his holiness... We ask these silly questions. How could a loving God send you to hell? When in reality, God's not sending them there at all. We make that choice. Also notice verse 7. Jesus is taking vengeance. Paul's saying here that these believers can fully trust that those who are persecuting them 
will receive full justice, reminding us not to become bitter at the injustices and the cruelty of our present world. You see, some folks get hurt, and then they let that bitterness just keep going in them. You need to turn it over to Him. Let Jesus deal with those that hurt you. Let Jesus deal with the, with the, the injuries. This is a difficult thing for us to see evil flourish and with seemingly no consequences in your life. I don't know how many people I have have brought this to my attention. You know, Christians that are beat down and they say, Man, I see these guys out here. They're living like kings. They thumb their nose at God. They take his name in vain. They live totally for themselves. And it just seems like they're blessed. And yet I'm struggling. I'm having a hard time. You know, the devil takes care of his own. But there's a time coming when they're going to receive justice. And you can rest on that. There were over 300 prophecies prophesying the birth of Jesus. Every one was fulfilled. There's almost twice that many prophesying the second coming of Jesus. And just like those 300, those others will be fulfilled. And he will bring justice. You don't have to be bitter. You don't have to let that eat you up. Verse 10 says, When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all them that believe. Because our testimony among you was believed in that day. This is an awesome verse. Jesus is coming to be glorified. His name has been mocked. It's been used as a byword. But the day is approaching when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. By all the billions who have ever, ever lived. And notice where he's going to be glorified? In his saints. Those that believe. This is the payday for Jesus. The rightful glory for the suffering he took for us. Receiving us as his bride. What he bought and paid for with his blood. As I've prayed and studied this week, I I keep thinking about this. This phrase keeps popping in my mind. It's like the Lord saying, make ready the bride. Make ready the bride. Get the bride ready. I'm coming for her. I'm coming for a church without spot or wrinkle. Because I'm a good person? No. Because Jesus has paid it all. He's coming for what he bought. Wherefore, we also pray always for you, in verse 11, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot in there. But when he says, count you worthy of this calling, what's he talking about? What's the calling? To suffer for Christ and also to be glorified with him. It's a a two-part thing. What does that mean, to suffer for Christ? In the Amplified Bible, it says this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to follow me as my disciple, he must deny himself, set aside selfish interests, and take up his cross, expressing a willingness to endure whatever may come, and follow me, believing in me, conforming to my example in living, and if need be, suffering, or perhaps dying because of faith in me. That's what he's asking us. That is our calling. 
The next phrase says, to count you worthy of this calling. The worthy he's talking about here is not to be made worthy of heaven because you can't get worthy. Jesus is the one who made you worthy. His act on the cross has made you worthy. So what worthy is he talking about? John Piper expresses it this way. He said it's like being made worthy of the presence of someone. Let's say you have an extra bedroom at your home. You probably got, ladies probably got your sewing in there, don't you? Or maybe your, your library. You guys may have some, some, some stuff from your hobby, your hunting stuff or whatever. So you got this special room, this extra room at your house, and you find out that the Queen of England is coming to your house. Now what's going to happen? You know, you, you look at that room and you say, hey, now the Queen of England's coming. I, this is not really worthy of her presence, so I've got to make some changes. I'm going to have to buy, the ladies are going to say, I've got to buy some new curtains. I gotta get new bedspreads and new pillows and new sheets, right? That's what they're gonna do. That's what I know you girls. That's what you do. And, and you might even say, you might even say, hey, you know, we're gonna have to get new carpet. That carpet's just not not worthy of the Queen of England. We gotta get that out of there, you know. Uh, so we're gonna go to all that trouble. And you know what else you're gonna do? You're gonna clean that room like you never cleaned it before, aren't you? Oh man, this has gotta be spotless. We're talking the Queen of England here, right? So we're gonna make all these adjustments. You want the room to be worthy of the presence of the queen. Well, the queen isn't really coming. The eternal king of glory is coming. And you are the room. You are the room. You are the room. That's why we strive to make changes in our life. The immortal king is coming. Paul is praying that we would fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. You see, our choices after being saved can add and build to the kingdom or that we can get in the way. Paul put it this way in another place. He said, no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. But what you build on it, hay, wood, stubble, gold, silver, whatever, one day is going to be tested by fire. Your salvation is secure. But what you build on, you know, we like to sing, I got, a, I, got a, I got a mansion just over the hilltop. You know, there's a bunch of songs about that. You know, I got a mansion in glory. Well, some of us may be disappointed with what we've built on that mansion. There's a, there's a Celtic uh, Christian rock group I like called Kaylee Rain. They had a song called Sending on the Lumber. And he talked about how living his life and doing what he was doing and trying to emulate Jesus in his life was sending the lumber on ahead, on ahead for his mansion. And so Paul is praying that we're obedient to the Spirit, that we're doing those things, that we are sending the lumber on. We're our choices that we make every day, you know, to speak up sometimes. This week I ran into a gentleman, 91 years old, and and you know I don't know how we got started talking on this, but I've been praying for God to give me boldness, holy boldness, because I think the time is short. I really do. Some way we got on the discussion, and I said, well, I don't think this world's going to last much longer. I think Jesus is coming to split the sky and coming for me, and I'm ready for it. Are you? And he said, I hope so. He's 91 years old. I just met the guy. I said, hope so? You can know so. Have you asked Jesus into your heart? Did you ask him to forgive you of your sin? If you've done that, the Bible says it's a done deal. So our choices... Paul is praying here that we 
will allow God's goodness to work in us. The miracle of the God of the Bible has not changed. He says, I'm the same yesterday, today, forever. We want to see our loved ones saved. We want to see miracles. We want to see salvation and, and healing and those kind of things. God hasn't changed. It's like the old preacher used to say about the husband and wife. They're riding down the road and, and they're reminiscing about the old days. And he says, uh, yeah. The wife says, yeah. He says, I remember when I used to sit so close, snuggled up to you, and we'd ride down the road. And the husband looks over and says, well, I haven't moved. I haven't moved. I'm still here in the steering wheel. Well, it's the same way with us and God. God hasn't changed. He wants to do great things in your life. He wants to bless you. He wants to give you hope and peace and love that will carry you through. Paul is praying for these believers to be receptive and obedient to the Holy Spirit's urging and to the written word of God in the Bible. Why? Not for them to be saved. That was settled on the cross. But that Jesus would be glorified in their lives and that they would be glorified in Christ. Notice it's not our strength or our abilities either but according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He purchased us with his blood and willingly provides the grace and strength to change our lives. So what's our part? Surrender, listening, seeking his will. That's our part. Pretty easy, isn't it? Just to say, here my Lord, take my mess. Take my mess. Forgive my sins. Come into my life. Be the Lord of my life. Give me direction daily, and he will do it. This morning, we're going to have communion this morning. The Bible warns us that not to take of this these elements unworthily, but you know, you can fix that in just that much time right there this morning. You can become worthy. Let's stand and close our eyes. If you feel like you're not worthy this morning, just say this little prayer with me. Father, we come to you and confess that we're sinners. We need your love. We ask you to come into our heart and to save us. We believe that you died on the cross for our punishment, for our sin, for what we really deserve, and that you rose from the dead the third day to justify us. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you would confirm your love to each of these folks here this morning, Lord. May your Holy Spirit speak strongly to them. And as we partake of the elements and remember what you have done, what you've paid for, what you've purchased, we'll give you the glory and the praise and the honor. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for this service. Thank you for your word. And thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name. If Elder Dave would come, we'll...